Good evening, everyone. Tonight we have two readings for you, two for the price of one. The first is Mark 16. The second one is over in 1 Corinthians. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Our second reading today is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 28. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then, when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he's destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Amy, and good evening, everybody, and a particularly warm welcome if you are visiting us as we celebrate Easter here at St Jude's in Parkville. And we're particularly looking at Mark's account of that very first Easter morning. And what's quite fascinating about Mark's account is what it ends with. Did you notice what it ends with? Afraid. It actually ends with silence. We are left hanging, not knowing what these women do next. And what Mark is very cleverly doing is, is actually inviting us to stand where these first trembling witnesses stood. He's inviting us into the story of that Sunday morning. These three women don't see Jesus. We have yet to see Jesus. 
these three women don't hear Jesus call their name. We too have not yet heard Jesus call our name. They were not invited to touch his wounded hands or feet as other disciples were. We too are yet to touch his wounded hands and feet. And so Mark actually ends the story suddenly and in silence. And the question he's leaving us with is, what do you do with a resurrection? What do you do with an empty tomb? That's the question that we're left with. And Mark wants us to plug our brains in. Well, we know what to do with an occupied tomb. We've, got, we've kind of got that sorted as the human race. Uh, nearby here in Carlton Cemetery, which is just over that way, uh, I googled how many people are buried there, because I obviously didn't have time to count them all. Uh, anyone want to have a guess? Not, not those who were here this morning, you, you can't cheat. 10,000, 5,000? 300,000 people. It's the most populated suburb, so to speak, in Melbourne. It's literally what is called a necropolis, a city of the dead, which sounds like a horrible thing, but it actually is, if you've walked through it, it's actually a very peaceful place. It's very interesting, actually. It's, it's peaceful, but yet a place of mourning. And so if you haven't had a walk through, it's a good reminder to walk through and be reminded of your own mortality, as well as, it's interesting, it's actually amazingly peaceful. And as you walk through that, that cemetery or other ones, what you notice is there are flowers resting on tombstones, there are handwritten notes that have been worn, uh, weathered by the rain and the wind, there are candles that have long since been put out, there are people huddled around certain gravestones, crying on each other's shoulders. The word tomb actually, by the way, literally means remembrance. And that's what you do at a tomb, at an occupied tomb. You weep for the person that you knew and loved and mourned. We know what to do with a full tomb, an occupied tomb. But what do we do with an empty tomb? Because that's what Easter is. Easter is responding to an empty tomb. And I want to say, look, three things that we can do this Easter as we respond to the empty tomb of Jesus. Firstly, understand that it's really history. In other words, these events actually happened. It's not made up. It's not a myth. Secondly, understand that it's a genuine victory over sin and death. Something worth celebrating, not with silence, but with praises of hallelujah. And thirdly, Understand that it brings each and every one of us genuine certainty. We know what the future holds for us as well. It gives us hope. So history, victory and certainty. And they all rhyme, which is one of the preacher's arts, right? You spend a lot of time working these things out. Well, let's look at the history. It, look, we know that Jesus really died. There's actually no historical debate whether Jesus died or not. Uh, Every historian, whether atheist or Christian or otherwise, uh, believes Jesus died. And in Mark 15, of course, we have the witness of the centurion at the cross, a man who has seen many, many uh, uh, people killed. He's an expert. He says Jesus died. Jesus is placed in a tomb with a huge stone over the front. And we have these brave women who've seen where Jesus has been placed. And now they're going on this first Sunday morning, which is the first day of the week. Now, they're not expecting a resurrection, then they're not expecting an empty tomb. 
because we know that because of what they've brought with them. Notice it said that they've brought spices with them to anoint Jesus' body. That's their mission as they go to the tomb. They're expecting to find it occupied with Jesus' body. They're going to have the question of who's going to move the big stone, but they'll work that out when they get there. See, these three brave women didn't think they would be the only people to come to Jesus' tomb. They just thought they'd be the first. The first of many hundreds and indeed thousands of people who had been amazed by the teaching and the character of this Jesus of Nazareth, whose life had come to an oh-too-short end. Because it was customary in Jewish tradition to preserve and honour a prophet or a holy man, uh, honour their grave by making it a shrine. That's what you would do to allow others to come and pay their respects. And that's what these women were doing because the bones of a prophet imparted their their kind of religious value to a holy site. As long as the bones were preserved there, that was a holy site you could come and venerate this person. That's why these women are headed there first thing on Sunday morning. If his remains aren't there, well, it's pretty hard to have a shrine. And so they come to do their work that people would come and remember for generation and generation, this is where the amazing prophet and teacher, Jesus, is buried. But of course, there's absolutely no history of anyone doing that. There's no history in the early church at all of anyone going regularly to a tomb to worship or to venerate Jesus in any way, shape or form. The crowds don't flock there, there's no mourning, there are no candles or the first century equivalent. They don't mourn, they don't weep because the tomb was empty. We read in verse 6. As they approach the tomb, the women see a young man who says the immortal words of every single angel who's ever existed, do not be afraid, right? As I always say, it's on their business card because that's the first thing people do. They get freaked out. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene. That's right. Who was crucified. That's right. And here are the immortal words that they hear. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. And obviously the the young man points to the position in the tomb where Jesus would have been if he had been there. And the women are shocked and amazed. It is not what they expected. They expected an occupied tomb, not an empty tomb. You see, the resurrection of Jesus was just as hard for those first followers of Jesus to get their head around as it is for us moderns to get our head around. It's not as if the kind of the ancient people were stupid and didn't have an understanding and we're so much smarter now. No, it is shocking in the first century just as it is shocking now in the 21st century. The Jewish people did believe in a future general resurrection where at the end of time God would raise uh, people from the dead, but there was no concept of individual resurrections. And the Greeks, by the way, the other Greco-Roman culture, which is really the main culture of the time, had no sense of resurrection at all. It had the afterlife where your soul floats off into heaven. Do you know that, that kind of picture? That's a Greek understanding of, uh, of after death, not a, which us Western cultures have kind of imbibed, common view today. The claim is, Jesus is not here. He is risen. The tomb is empty. And here are these three brave women who are witnesses to these events. And it's really, really important, these three women. 
Uh, Mark three times records their names. Now, in the Bible, you say things again and again and again for emphasis. You repeat yourself for emphasis. You say it again for emphasis. And Mark is doing that three times. He says, look, here is Mary, and here's the other Mary. By the way, Mary was a very popular name. Uh, It can be confusing because there are so many Marys. Here are two Marys and one Salome. They were here. They saw this. They met this angel. You can go and ask them. That's what Mark is saying to his early readers. These are not made up people. Go, Go talk with them. Have a coffee. Let them share their story, their good news story. He's actually inviting people to go, go check out the eyewitnesses yourself. If you don't believe me, go check out the sources. And by the way, it's really important that they're women too. This is, this is a revolutionary thing because if Mark was making this story up, he would have never, ever had women as the first witnesses to the resurrection. This is a very patriarchal society. In Jesus' day, the testimony of women was given very little, if any, weight at all. Women were not eligible to testify in Jewish courts. Only men were. Only Jewish men were. Uh, Celsus, who was a a Greek philosopher, he wrote against Christianity uh, quite vehemently. He was like the Richard Dawkins of of his day. Uh, This is what he said. Christianity can't be true because the written accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women. And we all know that women are hysterical. <laughs> right? This morning, about three women at the very front all laughed. I said, don't, don't, <laughs> don't encourage him. <laughs> like, that's amazing, isn't it? And this background is actually really important for two reasons. Uh, firstly, it's a reminder of Jesus' kingdom. The kingdom that Jesus brings in turns the system of his world completely upside down. Jesus radically affirms the full dignity of women. He gives them, and not his male disciples who have fled, by the way, the vital value of being the first witnesses to the risen Lord Jesus. What an extraordinary honour he gives these three women. See, if they were cleverly devised myths, then women would never have been given the role as witnesses. But these women are given the the astonishing privilege and honour of being the first people to proclaim the gospel. Jesus is alive. It's history. Secondly, it's also a real victory as well as being history. Jesus is not just another dead person who gives us really good advice on how to live a good life. He's not an influencer. That's the modern phrase, right? Not that I follow any because most of the advice they give wouldn't work for me. Too old, too grumpy. And by the way, what's good advice anyway if you end up dying? It doesn't really help you in the long run. The biggest problem we have In fact, Jesus knew that we we couldn't be good enough just through teaching and he knew that we needed a bigger issue to deal with, the the problem of sin. And through his death and resurrection has won, given us the victory over death. This is the great victory of Easter. The women were shocked and surprised, by the way, weren't they, that Jesus was alive? And to be fair, you would too, I reckon, if you'd turn up that morning writing to embalm a body. 
But of course, Jesus had actually promised beforehand three times, once again, that three times thing, in Mark's gospel, that he would die and be raised to life again in Mark 8 and then Mark 9 and then in Mark 10. Three times. Now, to be fair, promising that you will die is not that difficult. This evening, I declare to you, I promise, I'll even promise that I will die one day. Right? Hardly, not today, hopefully. Unless Jesus returns, that's true. Well, put that caveat one side. Thanks. <laughs> Your good theology has ruined my point. <laughs> Unless the Lord returns, yes, in which case, uh, amen to that. But barring that beautiful thing, I will die. Not difficult to make that promise, right? But Jesus promises not just to die, but to defeat sin and death by dying and, be raising, uh, and being raised to life again. Now, that is an entirely different promise to say, I'm going I'm to be raised to life again. That's a pretty bold promise. You want to be able to back that one up. And I reckon most people would be pretty cynical. But of course, Jesus is here to address the problem of death. Now, I've sat with people on their deathbed. I've comforted people as they've mourned and grieve the loss of dear loved ones. And you, you may personally know that, that just bitter, deep, horrible pain that death brings. The, the separation and brokenness of that relationship is just awful. It is terrible and inescapable. And the Bible says that it's the result of us living lives with no regard for the one who made us. The result of our sin. And because all of us sin, all of us face death. And no matter how much we fight death, it's an enemy we can't defeat by ourselves. We have some very bright medical people in our congregation. They have, we have doctors with PhDs, so they're doctor doctors, right? Is that a thing? Are you called doctor doctor? Anyway, they are, very, they are working on the cutting edge. There are diseases we can cure. There is treatment we can give. But yet we have yet to find the solution to stopping human beings from dying. We can't, it would seem, stop death from winning. Our bodies fall into disrepair and fail. And if, if you're someone who's been through injury or illness, you, you may be well aware of the fact that things don't quite work the way they used to. Or maybe other things work more than they used to. I'm not sure what the thing that's not working, right? Over-functioning, under-functioning, glasses, like a whole lot of things. They are a reminder that our bodies are are breaking down slowly. But there is only one man in history who has demonstrated the absolute power and authority over death. Jesus. Who not only, by the way, raised others from the dead, extraordinary, but came to earth, died on the cross, took the punishment that we deserved, and in doing so, restored our relationship with God and defeated death. How do we know he defeated death? The answer is because he rose again. That's the proof. If you say, I've defeated death but remain dead, not that convincing, to be honest. You claim to defeat death and then are resurrected from the dead? Well, all of a sudden, this becomes a real victory. This is what we have in our 1 Corinthians reading, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17. Paul argues here 
He's a good lawyer. He's saying, well, if Christ has not been raised, in other words, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if the women went to that tomb and found it occupied and did what they came to do, your faith is futile. Your faith is, you're wasting your time. You are still in your sins. Even though, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Oh, by the way, fallen asleep isn't just what happens in my sermons. It's, it's a polite way of saying dead. It's just Paul being polite. He's saying there is no hope for people who have died if there is no resurrection. It's a dead end. Literally. Then he says it really bleakly in verse 19. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people the most to be pitied. Christians are a waste of time if there is no resurrection. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, he says in verse 20. But Christ has indeed indeed been raised from the dead. He wants to emphasise it. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. See, see brothers and sisters, that, that is why today is such a beautiful day because Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Your faith isn't futile. Christ's victory is complete. And that's why we celebrate. Death conquered, sin conquered, Satan conquered, the wrath of God satisfied. A perfect relationship with your Creator. See, the centre of Christianity is not a tomb or a monument or building at all. It's actually a person. It's Jesus. Raised from the dead. Raised in triumphant victory. Which means that you can trust Jesus not just with your life, which you can, but also profoundly with your own death. Knowing that it is not the end. Jesus' resurrection is history, Jesus' resurrection is a victory, and thirdly, Jesus' resurrection brings you certainty. See, if Jesus' resurrection is true, then it changes everything. It changes everything. Not just today, it changes everything. Um, I think one of the reasons that we often find this world so hard and so difficult and so stressful is because we think that this broken world is the only world that we're ever going to have. And that your money is the only money that you're ever going to have to make your life work, or that, that your body is the only body you're ever going to have with all the things that are broken or not working. And that is why suffering is so hard. That's why injustice is so hard. It feels like... We've only got the next whatever years it is to make it right. And that is why hope is so important. Not blind hope, not kind of just wishful thinking, but a certain hope, knowing that Jesus has been raised from the dead. It means that you can know for sure that things will get better. Now, one thing I've noticed, uh, not just about Melbourne, but particularly in Melbourne, is... Today is a very good example. You go outside and you, you feel that one drop on your shirt and you think, ah, oh, I should have brought my umbrella or my puffer, puffer jacket again. Right? How many puffer jackets do I have? I've got a lot because I live in Melbourne, right? It, why, why do I think that? Because I know as soon as that first raindrop hits me, guess what's going to happen? 
It's Melbourne, right? More raindrops are coming. It's the very first one that it says, guess what? More are coming. And that's what we have in 1 Corinthians 15, this, this idea of first fruits. I'm sure if Paul had lived in Melbourne, he would have talked about rain, but he talks about first fruits. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 22, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all be made alive, but each in turn, Christ the first fruits. Then, when he comes, those who belong to him. So what Paul is encouraging us here is, Jesus' resurrection is the guarantee that you too will have a completely renewed and restored and resurrected body. Not just new minds and hearts, but a new body, a new perfect, unbreakable body, redeemed and brought back. And why this gives you such hope is, that you know then that this world... The, the, the kind of struggles you're going through now are not the only world, are not the only thing you'll ever be through. This is not the only body that you'll ever have. This is not the only life you'll ever have. And can you see how that, that kind of frees you from, from just being overburdened with anxiety? Because it means you can face the worst things. And I mean, seriously, uh, it's not denying the seriousness of those things. That, that, that can be really hard but, but underneath that, there's a real deep sense of joy and hope. It's not kind of ignoring the seriousness. No, no, it recognises it's serious, but there's something even bigger and more profound going on. They are not the end. They do not have the last say. Something more beautiful and perfect is to come. The resurrection means that you can look forward with hope to the day where there is no suffering. Our amazing medical people at church, you're out of a job in the new creation. Lawyers, out of a job. Right? That's a good thing, by the way. Not because we don't like lawyers or doctors, they're awesome, but because it means things that are broken are no longer are all restored. In just judges, you're out of the picture as well. Why? Because there is no more injustice. There's no more sexism, there's no more racism. The picture have is a, a world renewed in this very, very powerful picture where God is, is personally speaks of wiping away every tear. It's a very personal picture of God at work. That's what an empty tomb means. That's what an empty tomb means. Jesus' resurrection is history. It really happened. Jesus' resurrection is a genuine and real victory. He has defeated our great enemies of sin and death. And his resurrection gives us an amazing and beautiful certainty that this world is not all there is. There will be a new heavens and new earth. We will live with our king, our resurrected king forever. Let me pray that we will cling to this beautiful truth as we await his return. We thank you, our Heavenly Father, that in Christ alone we have life and life to the full. That in Christ and Christ alone we have the one who died for us. That in Christ and Christ alone we have the one who has been raised to life. Which has given us the victory over sin and death. 
and that in Christ and Christ alone we have the unbreakable and eternal hope that is found only in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.